Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. Howdy, I'm Sparrow. Greetings, and I'm Andrew McCarran. And we're here for our 11th session on William Blake's extended treatment on the uh, nature of the proverbial nature of hell, or the proverbs of hell. Is this really uh, our 11th? I know. We, <laughs> we still have, like, so far to go. 312 left, approximately. Yeah, so I think the the next one... I mean, we touched on what is now proved was once only imagined. And I did want to actually circle back on that very gently in that we're focused on proved as, you know, within a sort of science spectrum. That is that which for which a proof is established and agreed upon, et cetera, et cetera. But proved also means made real, like proof can also mean that which is made manifest. Yeah. But I just wanted to say that proved has a more ample meaning. Hmm. What is now proved was once only imagined. And also proved can mean tested, like uh, they proved the knife or something like that. You can, when you test something, you prove it. I think that's like a somewhat archaic um usage what was now what is now proved was once only imagined of course it's an interesting uh thought because it doesn't mean that everything that's imagined uh is eventually proved it's just what things that have now been proved were once imagined but uh, it right. reminds me when i went to college i took this uh interview with William Burroughs from the Rat newspapers. There used to be a newspaper called, an underground newspaper called Rat, put out in the East Village. And this uh, interview with William Burroughs, and, and in it, Burroughs said, uh, nothing happens unless it's written. And he was talking about how in, he lived in Tangiers in Morocco for a number of years, and how people would say, it is written. Muslims would say, it is written, meaning it is written in the Quran. And uh, Burroughs got this idea that nothing happens unless first it's written. He had a kind of literal understanding of that, that you write something and then it becomes real. 
like um, Wittgenstein as well, the limits of my language or the limits of my world. Oh, yeah, that's good, yeah. Oh, recently I was, I, I don't know if it was necessarily influenced by Rilke, but, you know, at the, the archaic torso of Apollo, you know, the last line is something like, you know, I must change my life. Actually, yeah. you you must change your life. And I, I know it because it's the last line of my um, recently uh, completed article on Bob Dylan's album Tempest from 2012. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. nice. Well, what I, um, what I came up with is something like, we must become text. Oh. Which I don't know what that means. Yeah, but, but that's interesting. Yeah, I know. We must this is something, something that you just readable. We must become. Yeah, I, I. Well, actually, it was within this book. You know what is called os. Um, you know this extended work, and I was editing, and I came on that line, and I was like, oh, that's interesting, and you know, as part of what we call a poem or you know a, a saying that I had built, and uh, that was the last line. But I do think that we have to become readable, legible. Mm. Yeah. Transparent, as people say nowadays. It's mm. important that we become more transparent, that our people say this about political things. Our process has to become more transparent, which in a sense means that we should become more legible. Legible is a kind of archaic word that could also mean uh, readable, written. Yes. So, you know, so opening up the door on that proverb, I thought maybe we could move to the next one, which I think would be yours, Andrew. The rat, the mouse, the fox, the rabbit watch the roots. The lion, the tiger, the horse, the elephant watch the fruits. That is a really mystifying one. Uh-huh. I mean, it doesn't see... At first you're thinking, okay, well, vegetarian creatures watch the roots, and but then wouldn't vegetarian, fruitarian creatures watch the fruits, but that's not how these uh, animals line up. The uh, the fox does was, not eat fruits. Uh, the lion, the tiger, yeah. the horse, the elephant don't eat fruits, that's for sure. Well, elephants eat fruits, I would yeah. say. And horse. Horses eat fruits. Do they eat apples and pears? Yes. Maybe every yeah. fruit for all I know. I mean, I think, as is often true of Blake, you know, you can't really read it literally. And I'm, and I'm not sure the understanding it around the year 1800 of the morphology of species was all that clearly understood. You know what I mean? Right. And that, you know, it's, um, you know, this is a proverbial dimension. So one has to take it, as they say, with a grain of salt. Is. Well, and also, yeah, I mean, also these have symbolic meanings, like right. the rat, the mouse, the fox, the rabbit. There was a kind of symbology that was connected to those creatures, I suspect, in 1794 that are not so closely connected now. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of one of those sort of like uh, logic problems or like an IQ <laughs> problem. Yeah. And I think I kind of get the nature of these two sets a little bit. They're not eating these things. They're watching them. Oh, uh -huh. yeah. Uh, First of all, in the, you know, I'm very literal. How can you watch roots? They're invisible. They're underground. Well, I think watch, you know, is a function of sight, but it's also 
uh, to watch is also to guard. Oh, true. And sort of to nurture, I think. And I was just going to say that it seems to me just in terms of the response to the first part, the sort of um, rejoinder, um, I said antithesis, but it's not exactly that. Hmm. But, you know, the lion, the tiger, the horse, and the elephant, in their natural states, they don't build nests. Okay, good. Yeah. And they also, I mean, they're also somewhat associated with sort of migratory, you know, they're always on the move, you know, they're going from place Mm. to place. They're migratory versus animals of the dwelling. Right. So if you're like a homebody animal that lives in a little hole somewhere, like a mouse does and a rat does and a fox and a rabbit does, in a fa- now I'm going to go back on myself and say maybe they do watch the roots because they have these little underground cavernous dwellings that have roots protruding from the ceiling in yes, some the, literal sense. The, their habitats. Hmm. They're rooted in some way that a, that a lion and a tiger, one doesn't think of them as being attached to their homes. They may have temporary dwellings, but they don't have really homes. I mean, mm-hmm. the way I was seeing it was the lion, the tiger, the horse, the elephant are kind of noble creatures. And the rat, the mouse, the fox, and the rabbit are ignoble creatures. They're, you know, proverbial, in their proverbial dimension, they are, they are small and um, humble, modest and unassuming, almost shameful creatures in a way. The rat uh-huh. deserts the sinking ship. I mean, I know that we brought up the rabbit has appeared before, and I believe, Sparrow, you had said that the rabbit might be associated with promiscuousness. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Certainly fox with sort of guile. I think that there's something to that. They're part of one structure, that the roots and the canopy of the tree and the fruit of the tree, they're all part of one entity, you know, so that they're complementary. It, you know, reminds me of sort of that Buddhist dictum, you know, about the desire to become like super pure, you know, that's related to the metaphor of the lotus, that the lotus that flops out and rises on the water with its beautiful white petals and with that perfume and that sense of serenity, et cetera, et cetera, is only possible because its its stem goes down into the water and then goes down into the mud and into the muck. Yeah. You know, the the expression of all of that uh, turgidity, et cetera, et cetera, and thonianness, you know? Um, and what? Thonian, you know, like the primordial fen, the prim- primordial muck out of which oh, okay. life emerges is, you know, that the lotus is the expression of that. Yeah. My guru uses that image of the, uh, the lotus in the muck that uh, keeps its eyes always on the moon. I think it's the way, you know, this, the holy moon, I think is the way he says that... Uh, 
story. So what's your point here, that the rat, the mouse, the fox, and the rabbit are, are like the lotus? Uh, no, sir. Uh, it was just the relationship between roots, you know, and that mm. which is in the dirt. I see. And the fruit of the tree, mm-hmm. you know, something yeah. that, you know, usually is associated with being desirable and you want to eat it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like an Aesop's fable of the fox and the grapes. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if this has any legs, but w- while you were talking about it, I, I was thinking about that very um, early poem, that Middle English poem, "Fowls in the Frith." It, it's a 13th century poem, very early poem in Middle English. It was found in this manuscript, if my memory serves correct, that contained primarily legal writings, and there was also some sort of musical score accompanying it. Hmm. Do you know this poem? It's it's a um, five no. line poem. And what is it? What's a frith? What's really weird? I don't know this poem. Fowls on the frith. I mean, I know the fourth of frith, uh, east of England. Firth. 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 Firth is a forest or like a a game preserve. Is that what a frith is? In the what? The frith. Firth. And well, let me read it to you, okay? Fowls in the frith, the fishes in the flood, and I mon wax wood. Such sorrow I walk with for best of bone and blood. Wow, that's that's very clear. Wow. Yeah, that'd be great. Did you? Is that it? You're not going to read that, more. That's it. And that you know, I took a dynamite class in English literature, and this was one of the very early middle. I think the earliest middle. English poem, and it, huh. scholars don't know if it's a refrain from a song or if it's complete. I'll huh. read it one more time. Fowls in the frith, the fishes in the flood, and I mon waxy wood. Such sorrow I walk with for best of bone and blood. Wow. What does it mean? Well, I, I, I take it it means, at least the way it was presented to me, it's um, really a poem about human beings and uh, after the fall, oh. how um, human beings are estranged from nature, whereas these um, other creatures have a habitat, have a natural encasement, huh. have an environment in which they belong. The um, fowls are in the forest, um, the fishes are in the flood, the water, but human beings are estranged from the, uh, the natural world. What, what is what's the literal translation of the poem? Okay, so the the birds are in the forest, the fishes are in the water, and um, I, as a man, what's wax a wood? Ah, uh, yeah, it means um, I mon wax wood. You know, I must go. I uh, uh, max, I believe, means something like go mad. Actually, uh, much sorrow I walk with. Yeah, I, I walk with much sorrow. I walk with much sorrow. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. It reminds me a little bit of The Revenant, of which we were speaking <laughs> anecdotally. Oh, yeah. The movie with Leo DiCaprio, very much. And I just wondered, is this is, is the proverb that, that I read, the rat, the mouse, the fox, the rabbit, watch the roots, the lion, the tiger, the horse, the elephant, watch the fruits. Is it meant to communicate some um, belongingness? Uh-huh. environment that um, human persons lack. In other words, that humans watch neither the roots nor the fruits. Yeah, I don't know. It just occurred to me. 
this poem just came to mind. I haven't thought about it in decades. Uh-huh. I mean, I think one thing I would say is, you know, what is the root of the sorrow that is driving I mm. mad? Yeah. Uh, and the root of that sorrow, which I guess is picked up in those first two lines, is that we don't know, we don't have some place where we belong. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm. It's interesting. I, I'm like sort of struck by that last line, for best of boon and blood, for best of bone and blood, right? For a beast, for a beast of bone and blood. Oh. That I human persons are a beast, you know, we're a beast of bone and blood, and we're, we're mad or full of walking with sorrow. Uh-huh. We don't have um, a natural cradle. There's, we don't have our roots or our fruits you know, that belongingness, that eco-belongingness. Oh, interesting. Uh, what I'd like to do, I've got a recording of it. And that was the musical huh. score. That was the musical score that was found with the five-line poem in the legal manuscript from the 13th century. Interesting. So it's uh, somewhat complete. Yeah, um, hmm. it is. And it, you know what? Uh, of course, I'm just serendipity, but it's interesting because. Blake's po much of Blake's poetry was meant to be sung, had musical accompaniment, melodies. Oh yeah. Not the Proverbs of Hell as far as we know. Yeah, I went to this reading the other day. I don't know if I told you this. I was in a reading at Tibet House in New York City that was um, a tribute one of these four readings that was a tri- were tributes to Allen Ginsberg and uh, Stephen Taylor who was an accompanist of Ginsburg, uh, performed uh, three or four Blake songs uh, musically as as musical pieces. One of them was London. I think oh, that was yeah. the one set to music by Thule Kupferberg of the Thugs, the poem London. Yeah, it was interesting to hear these Blake. They were songs of innocence and experience, most of them. Allen Ginsberg recorded an album of, of the poem. Yeah, home. and I think Stephen Taylor might have accompanied him on this album. Isn't he an Arab? Isn't that's Stephen yeah. Tyler? Oh, okay, that changes things. I was yeah, this is Stephen <laughs> Taylor. Stephen Taylor. Stephen Taylor was at Brown when I was there. Oh yeah, he was going out with Leanne Brown. Yeah. Oh yeah, Brown was at Brown. Uh, you know, he was sort of. Kicking around, I think he may have been doing some teaching music, right. but he didn't have a gig there. But you know, he was just uh, part of the merry band. The one thing I wanted to ask is, it might be interesting to do a little research on what kind of accompaniment Blake saw or practiced to his work. Um, you know, what did he write about music and the music of his poetry? Yeah, I'd love to know that. Yeah, we should look into that. And they sounded great, these songs. I mean, I have heard them. I think I heard Ginsberg sing some of the Blake songs. There's one on uh, the first Fugs album, How Sweet I Roam from Field to Field. 
that I yeah. listened to many times. Yeah, they sound great as songs. The the Blake poems, like that, uh, like that song that you just played, Andrew. Yeah, just sounded right as a song somehow. I know the one thing that occurred to me is that I feel as though what Andrew found, Fowls in the Firth, is um is the fruit. <laughs> is yeah. itself the fruit. Yes. I wonder if, like, centuries from now, people will be reading uh, Bob Dylan's uh, lyrics and they'll be saying, you know, actually, these were originally set to music. It's hard to believe. That would be something, right? Yeah. (laughs) So let's keep talking. How do you guys, how does this parable rest with you all, or proverb, I should say? Well, there were some things I was going to say. I mean, I I love uh, your thoughts, Andrew, but I don't agree with you. <laughs> I don't think that's what this proverb is saying, is that uh, animals have a place in nature and we don't. I mean, it could be that it's what it's saying, but that's not how I see it. I think, but I'm not sure, that the lion, the tiger, the horse, and the elephant are all noble creatures, the way people thought in the 18th century, and they watch the fruits. The rat, the mouse, the fox, and the rabbit are all uh, kind of uh, sort of not admirable, low-life creatures, and they watch the roots. So I think that Blake is telling us, watch the fruits, not the roots. I mean, I'm really not sure of this, but that's my guess about what this means that watching the roots means thinking about the past, maybe, the thinking about the terrestrial, and uh, thinking about and watching the fruits means what's the spiritual outcome of something, kind of like the difference between karma and dharma, maybe, that the roots are the karma and the fruits are the dharma, like, Keep your eye on the fruit. Forget about the roots. That's what I think he's saying, but I'm really not sure. You know, it's very rare that Blake approaches animal, the animal world, putting one form of possibility or, you know, um, activity associated with an animal, putting something down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the fruits maybe would conjure through association, um, the biblical image. Hmm. of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hmm. Could it be, uh, this is another very speculative reading, but that, that, that Blake is, um, through this proverb, suggesting that there are non-human animals that have um, some degree of higher consciousness. Than uh-huh. But what, how does that connect with the tree in the Garden of Eden? Oh, because the fruit is, is it, this yeah. allows you to reach this higher consciousness. Yeah, I mean it's it's the it's the um the uh food of human beings, right? In mm-hmm. the garden of Eden, human beings are drawn to the fruit because they wonder, they have questions. Um mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. This is a lot of um I think uh speculative theology, but um it's kind of cool to think that Blake would elevate the animal to mm-hmm. a spiritual conscious bearing experiencer of life. Mm. Yeah, dig it. The one thing that also, though, coming out of the garden is sort of that Cain and Abel, I don't know, split, you know, between the 
person who wanted to wander and hunt versus the one who wished to farm and be stable. Hmm. Um, you yeah, know. that's interesting. Yeah. And that, you know, very similar to, to the marriage of heaven and hell, you know, it's the marriage of Cain and Abel or Abel and Cain, or, you know, I'm not sure how to, and that, you know, that they're both, um, together in the manifestation of the tree. What do you mean that they, they form like a whole Cain and Abel together? No, the roots and the fruit. That the mm-hmm. roots are the beginning and the fruit is the end. Uh, Imeo right. alpha, keto, omega, imeo proto, keto, telafteos. Wow. I'm, yeah. What is that? <laughs> oh, I am the alpha and the omega, uh, the first and the last. That's in Greek? Yes. Whoa. I didn't know uh, you had that in you. Yeah, well, I'm trying to make a strong argument for, you know, this, I, I think that's sort of what Blake's doing. I really like that. It's a, right. I, I like it a lot, actually. But what, I still don't understand, how does that fit into the fruits and the roots exactly? Is Abel the fruits and Cain is the roots or something like that? I think that Abel and Cain got into a scuffle and that, and that Cain killed his brother with the jawbone of an ass. It was the first um, murder uh, and familicide, uh, um, you know, within the family. Fratricide. But where do you see, see Cain and Abel in the proverb? Although I find the story compelling. Where? Oh, Cain and Abel. Um, Cain wandered. He was a hunter. Yeah. He, you know, was oh, abroad yeah. in the world, you know, like the lion or the tiger, the horse and elephant. Oh. And Abel was more, you know, domestically minded um, and was more rooted. No, I think that Abel actually was... Keeper of sheep. He was the shepherd, right. He slaughtered so, sheep. <laughs> he slaughtered and Cain sheep. was the vegetarian. Cain was, was the farmer. Where's my, I'm not, you know, where are you? I, I, I'm not my brother's keeper, right? Um, so they both put up a uh, sacrifice to God. They had sort of a competition, a sacrifice competition. Cain brings a bunch of barley grains. Abel brings a nice dead sheep or a sheep that he kills on the, on the altar. And God loves the savor of the dead animal. <laughs> God is like a, you know, a lusty carnivore. He doesn't care about that bunch of vegetarian nonsense that Cain is, uh, uh, you know, offering him. So then uh, Cain gets really furious that with Abel because uh, Cain's uh, sacrifice was not acceptable to God, so he kills. So he's re- it's really, he's really the first vegetarian murderer. Yeah, I've served some of those at a vegan restaurant that I was a waiter at. Oh, some of those... Um, as just a, a bad joke, just just a some I, of those. What do you call it? Like, uh, homicidal vegans. You yeah, mean? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That summer, I worked at that place no. and was abused by the clientele. Um, and then I quit and worked at a steak place, and I found everyone very lovely. Thank yeah, you. because uh, they're getting their needs met. You know, they don't have to kill you because they're killing animals. It's like. Um, it's like Christianity. So, so my um, my take still holds, right? I just had the names trans. I just had them transversed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So that's good. One thing, though, is that, you know, I agree. I mean, the path of Abel is a very attractive one. Mm-hmm. To be, uh, you know, wandering in the hills and uh, in the vales and across the creeks and to be... And playing, uh, your, playing your flute. Yeah. I mean, playing the uh, fowls on the firth. It was mm-hmm. like, um, there were some early theories of evolution that were present before Darwin, right? True. Lamarck and um, others. 1800, yeah. Yeah, um, and I'm wondering, um, with the roots and the, the fruits, is this some sort of evolutionary thing? Hmm. Um, is he creating some taxonomy of, of, of animals and lower and higher forms to suggest an evolutionary continuity? Um, I, it's a good point, wow. because the... the uh, the first list, rat, mouse, fox, rabbit, are less complex yeah. uh, animals than the tiger, horse, elephant, and lion. So, that, you know, they are, in a sense, more primitive, I would say, taxonomically or from the point of view of evolution. I think that's basically true. That's, Maybe not so much the fox. The roots grow into the, the fruits, obviously. There's a, a process. Mm. Just as um, animal life does, and you know, I, I, I know Blake was hip to scientific science and math, and, you know, uh, autodidact. So life. you're saying that Blake is valorizing, if that's the right term, the nature of lions and tigers and probably bears, but horses <laughs> and elephants over these more domestic-minded um, animals. I mean, I, I don't know. It's possible. I think maybe that he's playing with 18th century creationist theological narratives that everything was um, was created in its final form. Um, he's such a poet of process and, and becoming. Um, maybe he's locating some organic process, evolutionary process, which uh, is a more complicated origin story. I mean, what yeah, I, I don't know. Saying. I just don't. I really just don't see Blake as putting down animals. You know, even no, the word has its place. It, where he's saying that the rat, the mouse, the fox, and the rabbit are lower on the evolutionary scale, which means they're more like roots, and the lion, tiger, horse, elephant more further on, more like fruits. But they're all okay. It's not that one's better than the other. It's just that right. there are different stages of evolution. I think that's the argument Andrew's making, which I, right. it's a strangely, you know, it works within the within the sentence, more or less, I think. And his use of, I mean, the use of the, the atypical or, um, I'm sorry, asymmetrical use of punctuation, the fox, the rabbit, colon, watch the roots, the lion, the tiger, the horse, the elephant, comma, watch the fruits. I don't know what to make of that. But in the edition that I have, there's no comma after elephant. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Same. The other thing the that thing. I would say is that, in terms of size, also, you know, mm-hmm. lions and tigers are, are good size so that they can, you know, easily reach the fruit. Oh. You know, keeping in mind the struggle of the fox in Aesop's Fables. Hmm. You know, and the horse and elephant, you know, they're in easy access of the fruit. So it could also be that, you know, going back to fowls on the fur, that everybody fits within an ecological niche, Mm -hmm. perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wanted to point out that Blake, I believe, was a vegetarian. 
And so he's giving a very vegetarian parable here, where in fact, uh, you know, some of these creatures in the real world eat the other creatures. But instead of discussing that, uh, Blake is having some of them watch the roots and others watch the fruits as if they're all sort of gentle vegetarians like him. Uh-huh. Hmm. And I do want to well, go I... on record as saying I agree with Sam that, um, that Blake is not going to, as far as I can tell, rank certain creatures over other creatures, even though I keep arguing that. I think, I think what he's saying is kind of, I mean, I feel like a lot of what these proverbs say is like, find out who you are. Find out what is your intrinsic self, your intrinsic nature, and follow that nature. One law for the tiger and the mouse is tyranny. It's a, to, uh, paraphrase. I know he wrote a proverb that's something like that. And I think what he means is, we all have our own personalities. We all have our own sort of purpose in the universe. There needs to be rats, mice, foxes, and rabbits. We all have some role. But what's, you know, it says in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Krishna says, uh, to follow another person's karma is hell. You know, if you find your own dharma, the thing you're supposed to be doing, do that. But if you're doing somebody else's job, you're going to go insane. So I think that something like that is what Blake is saying. He's not saying it's better to watch the fruits than the roots. He's saying just find out who you are and do that. Good point. I yeah. love Right, he was living in an age of great conformity and mm-hmm. a lockstep ethos. I mean, you mentioned the poem London, right? right. Um, chartered streets of London, right? The ordered uh, mm. streets, that the uniformity of things. Yeah, and also he's He's writing this around the, you know, during the height of the French Revolution. So there's the frustration of living in this very conservative society where nothing ever uh, is discarded. The the English are like, oh, yeah, there's the ruin of a a church from the 12th century. God forbid we should turn it into a shopping mall. We got to keep it for all eternity. And uh, meanwhile, the French are like, they're getting rid of the months. They're going to re, they're going to write a new calendar with 10 months. You know, they're going to change from feet to meters. They're going to change everything. The whole universe is going to change over there just across the channel in France. And poor Blake is stuck in this place that never changes. So it must be very frustrating. Yeah. I'm not sure necessarily, Sparrow, to the extent that I believe that Lake abided in a infinite potentiality and that he his um desire to make um and to say so much and to ponder you know in this infinite voyage um just on his own do you know what i'm saying sparrow what do you mean that it's more than just well I, i just think that he himself Lake. i don't think that he was all that confined um, in in his own time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was that's I guess what I was trying to say. But I also wanted to to ask you, and I don't know if we've ever discussed this, and that is going back, Spirit, to what you were saying about the animals, and we've been talking a lot about these two sets of animals. Do either of you have a totemic animal with which you associate oh. yourself? I mean, I, you know, I live in the country, so I'm obsessed with crows. I'm constantly writing poems 
about crows. What did I, I wrote one yesterday? It was called Vision. It goes something like, I see a crow dressed as a fireman. So should we move on? Okay. Yeah. It's your turn, I guess, Sam. The cistern contains, the fountain overflows. Hmm. Gotta say, I sort of feel like we're back on the 4th of Firth. <laughs> How do you mean? Uh, that's the, you know, it's, it's that big body of water that's the terminus of the Firth, I guess, river. It's the 4th of Firth. It's up in Scotland. Yeah. It's like a big estuarial marine structure. Hmm. What is a cistern? It's what gathers rainwater, right? You you later drink it. Yeah, you can bathe in it. Hmm. But I think that it also sort of is uh, loops back a little bit to the previous proverb that we were just discussing. Yeah, I know. I found myself thinking the structure of it, where there's yeah. the first part and the second part. The roots versus the fruits, the container versus the the fountain, the the giver. Yeah, that which overflows. Um, yeah, and I guess the fruit is a form of overflow, right? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, true. I mean, it's hard to think of the fountain overflows without thinking, my cup runneth over, which is also kind of a proverbial line from the 23rd Psalm kind of an amazing uh, image of God's love this overflowing you know, that it's it's not just enough, it's more than enough yeah, and also of course the cistern is a man-made structure and the fountain I guess is a fountain na- a naturally occurring, is there do you have fountains in, na- in nature, you have springs you have, I don't think they're fountains in nature. No, I would say not. Right. I mean, per se, I mean, there might be something that's metaphorically called a fountain, but I can't, maybe a certain kind of rock formation in the far west that looks a little bit like a fountain. But but I guess a fountain Hmm. would be hooked up, would be connected to a spring, and like now in the modern world, the fountains are pretty much all pumped up. There, a lot of the water is, I think, recycled, recirculated. But I think maybe in in uh, Blake's time, a fountain would be connected to a spring, so it would be kind of a channeled natural phenomenon. Right, and sure. like in the streets of Rome, continuously flowing. Yeah. And flowing from a natural source, not not from a, a mechanical pump. I like the reading of all the two proverbs we've read today as being um, expressions of um, different expressions of dharma, hmm. um, different ways of being or different um, purposes. And I was thinking about a Christian correlate that would be the um, gifts, the spiritual gifts um, that Paul writes about in his letter epistle to the to the romans that some are are given the gift of perceiving serving teaching encouraging giving ruling mercy and then he also has um prophetic uh no spiritual um gifts like a uh, healing prophecy um that we have to find this in our in our in our over our lifespan 
it's something we just, I guess, I guess some people refer to it as your destiny or your daemon to use that ancient Greek concept, mm-hmm. following your, uh, finding your, 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 your calling, your calling. Yeah. And it varies, right? From person to person. So dramatically what you and perhaps, to, and perhaps from year to year or from phase to phase of one's life. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Well, a cistern is kind of, uh, crucial kind of necessary for life depending on where you live aren't um, ashes also put in cisterns what's that are ashes when someone is cremated put into a cistern the right urn. Urn. Oh, an urn. so the cistern yeah. just collects water right okay and it's quite possible that fountain in blake's time refers to like a spring because i think the key in this in this structure are the verbs is that which contains versus that which overflows. It's a, right. you know, as they say, a metaphor. And um, jeepers, it just sort of feels as verbs, you know, I want to overflow. Yeah. I want to spill out. I want to spread out and, um, you know, to fill, create more space. And also, you know, are roots better than fruits? Well, he puts fruits... First of all, they rhyme, and he puts fruits second, and he puts overflows second. Like, imagine if it had been the fountain overflows, the cistern contains. Mm-hmm. I think somehow the logic of grammar or of syntax, I guess is the word I'm looking for, makes the second verb, every, whatever comes at the end seems more important than whatever comes at the beginning. So, right. It, it, it kind of the emphasis comes on the last word. Mm-hmm. Yes, we want to be fountains and overflow. We don't want to be cisterns and contain. Yes. It's almost as though the fruit is at the end there, too. And I'm wondering if we could read the next one. I wonder yeah, okay. if you could read the next one. I think that, you know, we're feeling that these things are all intertwining. One thought fills immensity. Very satisfying to read out loud. Yeah. It's very pretty. It's a, it's such a perfect thought, <laughs> frankly. And it's so similar to the one that we were just talking about. The one that we started out, the ones that we did less, what is now proved was once only imagined. The one we started this conversation with. Mm-hmm. Somewhat similar to that. Sam, it's a line that I could imagine you writing. Oh yeah? Yeah. Up those immensity. It's like a, one of those truant, language hmm. verse. Hmm. I know, I feel it. And also the fountain overflows seems very similar to one thought fills immensity. Uh, that's such a great poem. There's a real parallel there. Yeah, like one fill yeah. fills immensity. But but it's also that, you know, a mouse is a thought. <laughs> um, you know, is that is that very small things if they're seen mm-hmm. through the, through, you know, I want to use a Blake term, you know, through the mind's eye, oh, yeah. um, you know, contains, fills immensity. I understand that, you know? Yeah, there is some, there is some line, something like, if you see things as they truly are, everything is infinite. Something like that is a Blake quote. 
Oh, well, the doors took their name, right? When the doors of perception are cleansed, things will be seen as they truly are infinite. Yeah, yeah. And Brockbrand, the doors harvested their name from that Blake. And I think it's the epigraph to, um, no, it's the title, right, of Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception. Right. Masculine usage. It's the source, of that, which is all about masculine. Yeah, but sort of going back to the rat, the mouse, the fox, and the rabbit, I, um, you know, I want to say that, you know, in terms of this one thought and the sense of going to the root of thought. Mm-hmm. In other words, going into that tree structure, like looking into what is the root of thought? Mm-hmm. of one thought. I mean, I'm at the moment inclined to say the roots of thought are emotion. Yeah, the, there's this, my favorite psychological theorist that I, whose work I um, wrote about a lot in graduate school, this guy, Sylvan Tompkins. He um, studied emotion. Um, he was a psychologist of affect. And hmm. he had this um, rather complicated theory about how emotion generates language that crystallizes into these these scenes or these scripts that um, repeat at various times in our narrative, I'm mm. triggered by um, having similar emotions that match the prompting emotion. Really, really interesting angle into human being theories of motivation, cognition, but emotion, yeah. Emotion is the root. Yeah. I mean, that's how it feels. It feels like you start out with a feeling and somehow words arise that are dictated or summoned by that feeling. And vice versa, right? What do you mean? You have words that, oh, that create feelings. Yeah, exactly. It could work in, a, in either way, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I think really it's fair to say that we don't know, or it's fair to say that I don't know what are the roots of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just feels like you get these thoughts. Who knows where the, I, where the hell they come from? You know, I don't talk before noon, and so I'm kind of listening to my thoughts, and, you know, just I can't predict what these thoughts are. You know, suddenly I'll just find myself thinking Roscoe, Roscoe. Why am I thinking Roscoe? I don't know anyone named Roscoe. You know, just strange words come into my mind, and I sort of pursue them. And I don't know where they came, you know, they, they feel sort of spiritual, emotional, and uh, meaningless all at the same time. <laughs> Do you think that thought is hell? Hell? Yeah. I mean, we're reading the Proverbs of Hell. I thought I would throw that in. <laughs> I mean, I know that, you know, in my whatever New Age stage, uh, it was very easy to be brainwashed into thinking that, that thoughts were hell. You know, that I was seeking some blissful experience that existed outside of language and thought, and uh, that my thoughts were crowding in the, uh, the Eureka people in the 70s. It was a big, at least in my little world, the Eureka training was a big deal. And they had the word chitch. That was the word they used for like all thinking. Like I got to get this chitch out of my mind, this constant uh, restlessness. You know, plus we were all 23 years old. So 
Of course, we were full of constant restlessness. Where were the Eureka people? Um, where did they live? Well, they all started, they they all met in Eureka, Chile. Eureka was, a, I think, a little town in Chile, the country. Yeah. And it was a bunch of, like, New Age masters that met together and they created this training, I don't know, 1969, 1970, something like that. So I they sort of hit um, Gainesville, Florida. They hit the New Age scene in Gainesville, Florida in uh, 75, I think. And they started, had a center. They had a big center on 57th Street in New York City. I mean, they were all over the place. They were a, kind of a big deal within the 70s New Age. And they were very radical. They were, uh, they were kind of anti-spiritual in a way. They, you know, they were kind of proto-yuppies in a way. Like they said, cut your hair, wear nice clothes, don't be attached to being unattached. You know, they, they, they tended to be kind of, um, a little, what's the word, brutal, kind of, as people. Do you feel that you're a good standard bearer of that practice? It costs money, you know, I was sort of against it because it costs money. My yeah. friend Steve came to me in like 75 and he, he sort of demanded that I give him $400 for the Eureka training. You know, because that was part of Eureka. You would just go to your friend and say, here, give me the money. You know, like you were kind of asking for what you wanted. You know, you were being direct. These were the virtues of Eureka. And I said, no, I'm not going to give you the money. I only had about $800 in the bank, you know, all my money in the world. I just didn't feel like giving it to him. Why can't he make his own money? Is he mad? I was a little disappointed. I mean, I don't think he, I don't, can't remember if he did it. He ended up going off with, uh, what was his name? Yogi Bhajan? No. Amrit Desai. He went to live in the Amrit Desai ashram instead. Was that Yogaville? Not Yogaville. No, Yogaville is Aurobindo, Sri Aurobindo. This is, it still exists. It's in, uh, California. It's in, um, Massachusetts now. But it was in uh, Pennsylvania when he was there. So what is it called? I think maybe your wife has been there, Sam. Hmm. Uh, but oh. they got rid of, they kicked out Amrit Desai for like sleeping with his dis- disciples. So, Are you, you know, you're, you're screwed everywhere you go with the New Age. It's in the Berkshires near Stockbridge. Exactly. What is it called? It's got a funny name like Hagadon or something. Kripala. Kripalu. That's Kripalu. it. I went there. It was the still uh, gang behind Kripalu. How fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Amrit Desai was a gorgeous leonine guy, very lion-like looking, healthy, strong. You know, he was a kind of celebrity guru, very young, with this long black hair. You know, like when you found out eventually that he slept with his disciples, it was like, duh. You know, like... <laughs> I mean, this guy was, like, born to sleep with his disciples. <laughs> yeah, the one thing that I would say that's at the root of a thought is potentiality. Uh, is, yeah. What does is that, that mean? prior, in other words, prior to the thought incarnation, mm. that from which the thought emerges is a infinite potentiality. In other words, you can think anything. Mm. You know, at that moment, you really have 
infinite possibility. Anything can be thought, mm. right? And then you think something, and so it's become whatever it is you think, and then that drifts away. Mm. But prior to that, there's um, an immensity. And I think that, in part, is maybe what Blake is pointing toward. The, the way you said it, though, Sam, sounded a little disappointed, Like. There's all this, uh, there's all this potentiality. Anything can happen. Then you say it and then it drifts away. You know, then like, so what? Yeah. Say it. It's like you realize it's sort of nonsense, you know? Well, I, I do think that the nature of a thought mm. generally has, broadly speaking, doesn't have <laughs> much to hold on to. You know, there's not. Depends on the thought. Some thoughts are great. Most thoughts are are chitch. <laughs> you kind of recycle your thoughts. You're like you're thinking, God, I got to remember Say. to ask my wife if she can take me to the blood test tomorrow. And it's like, wait a second, I already thought that 312 times. I didn't need that... to think that again. I just need to write it down and forget it. But I mean, most thought is so repetitive. That's maybe the hellish part of thought is the repetition. Uh huh. Usually in circles, running around in circles. Yeah, if you don't have anything to distract yourself. This is why everybody is distracted. This is why everybody is watching, you know, 400 episodes of Game of Thrones so they can, like, try to stop thinking. <laughs> and TV's getting better at that. <laughs> well, we've got to get through this. Yeah, we got to get and through then, these proverbs. We should of think about, you know, what what have we mostly enjoyed about doing these things? I mean, I I thought the best ones were we had some sort of topic and then brought work to it. You know, where we right. spent half an hour of research or whatever right. of preparing. I liked that, but it involved like a little bit of uh, homework, you know. Yeah, yeah, I don't mind that. I mean, let's do another one where just a minimal prep. So. Let's do this. Well, Mascaro, you usually do that. You usually have notes. And well, I haven't lately with this. Uh, although, you know, I had, I did bring a couple of books with me to this uh, meeting today because I thought maybe I will uh, try to weave in Wabi Sabi into this discussion because I'm very slowly reading this book called Wabi Sabi for Artists. Designers. Oh, wabi sabi, like the Japanese um, concept. Yeah, I think that sounds like a good uh, good idea. And the one I was thinking is we do void, V O I D. Okay. Well, we never did void, huh? We never did void, and it's such a natural for us. After all, one thought fills immensity. That uh, fits right in, or leads right into void. Look what I'm looking at oh, right now. Beautiful. Good point. Yeah. Nice. It's a, it's a, I found a check that says void on it, right in front of <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's calling. The important thing, yeah. something I didn't think of, is uh, how it fits in with the checking. Yeah. yeah. It's used a lot, right? Maybe less so now that everything seems to be uh, digital, money-wise. Oh, true, yeah. Did you see that Melania is starting her own money? <laughs> Melania Trump is? Yeah, something like that. Somehow. Oh, my God. The one thing I would say is that I think one thought is a void. Is a void? Yeah, it's possible that a thought is a void. 
Okay. How is the thought of wood? <laughs> Did we uh, all disappear? Oh. Do you know, as I said that, my tooth fell out. Your oh. tooth? Yeah. That's the danger. I swear to God, I have a false tooth. And I just, tooth? look at that. Sparrow, look. Let me look. Oh my God, your tooth just fell out. Man, this tooth is so out of my head. I can't put it back in. Oh no. I guess a thought is a void, then, if, if uh, this seems to be more or less proving it. Wow. Uh, Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.